Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. I've been on holiday and it's been a month since I last did one of these, so you can imagine my profound lack of surprise at returning to find we are still talking about the McLeod remedy. Our first employment today is in examining what happens when the resistible force that is government meets the immovable object that is anti-discrimination law. After which, and despite the best efforts of the pensions regulator, industry players remain concerned by the provisions for a twin-track approach in its new DB funding regime. We'll ask what those concerns are and whether they are fair. And finally, I almost managed to get through a whole introduction without mentioning coronavirus, which does make the drinking game comparatively a dull affair. Uh, Paul Tinsley, professional trustee at Dalriada, writes in Pensions Expert that the pandemic is one of a number of challenges facing master trusts in the months and perhaps years ahead. We'll take their temperature and see if they are showing any symptoms. I'm Benjamin Mercer, a reporter at Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by Alistair Jones, Client Strategy Director at SEI, and the Pensions All-Rounder Conservative Party peer, the Baroness Rosaldman of Tottenham. Thank you both very much for joining me. It will be remembered that the whole point of the McLeod remedy was to provide recourse to younger scheme members left disadvantaged by the 2015 pension schemes reforms. But now, in response to the consultation, a group of police officers have argued that this response aimed at rectifying age discrimination is itself discriminatory on grounds of age. Uh, indeed, they say it exactly mirrors the unlawful discrimination that arose from the reforms. There is, of course, such a thing as lawful age discrimination, but the officers of the law are convinced this isn't it. So, um, Roz, if I, if I can begin with you, could you shed some light on this for us? I mean, how, how has it come about that uh, in an attempt to tackle age discrimination, we've got more age discrimination? Well, I think this is one of those really tricky areas of, of both law and if you like, common judgment, which is so often involved in pensions, when you make a determination about something or you change a policy on something that is based on effectively age, but is thought of in terms of, for example, distance from retirement, which then you try to justify. And if you are not able to justify it, which was the case for the special arrangement, the transition arrangement in the Hutton reforms to, to um, public sector pensions, then by trying to undo that, you are giving favourable treatment potentially to people who were not of the same age as those who felt they were discriminated against. And, and it's one of those areas where you certainly would not want to have differential arrangements, but in pensions so often one does. And it's not clear to me how the government is going to get round this other than possibly changing the law. Okay. And what would such a change in the law uh, entail? Or what would it look like if passed? Because, uh, of course, so far they've not managed to, as you say, get around it in any other way. I mean, is there a way of solving this problem without leaving somebody disadvantaged? Well, it depends what you mean by disadvantaged. And that's, of course, another debate and discussion. What you've had is a differential system of pension provision, depending on how close the public sector worker would be to the date at which they could start taking their pension. Now, because that date is determined by your age, differentiating on those grounds is considered to be discriminatory. 
But there are exemptions in law for justifiable age discrimination. So it is possible that the government may need to say, well, the government is entitled to use other factors such as distance from retirement date or number of years of contribution or length of service, which would in a way proxy age, but is a a justifiable use of age in the circumstance because it is meant to reflect other factors. But quite honestly, this is all possibly much broader because you've also got a situation in many workplaces where the older, longer serving members of staff are in a defined benefit pension scheme into which the employer pays enormous sums. Even if it's closed, the employer is often having to support that scheme, while the newer and typically younger members are in a much less generous defined contribution scheme into which the employer pays far less. Is that discrimination? Again, it's not clear, and I would assume that the courts will say because a new employee could also be older, they don't necessarily have to be younger, although the vast majority tend to be, it might not be quite as discriminatory and and therefore egregious in the legal terms as this McLeod situation was, because age is obviously going to be related to the age at which you expect to draw your pension. And um, Alistair, I wonder if you wanted to jump in in on this this question of of remedies. I mean, can you see a way around this change in the law that may be required? Well, I I agree with Roz. It's it's so tricky, isn't it? Um, And it seems that a lot of these public sector pensions have been caught by this public sector equality duty. Um, So it's a very wide ranging issue. Um, You know, I think that stemmed from the judicial pension scheme for judges that the police have have now got involved in it. But it's it's very wide ranging. And I just I, I agree with Roz, really, that you know, a lot of public sector pensions have been changed over the years, but it's very commonplace in the world of private sector as well. I know the private sector doesn't have to adhere to this public sector duty, but equality law, you know, exists throughout society. So, you know, it is possible this could have wider ramifications down the line. And as Ros says, you know, many schemes have changed, members have changed their benefits from final salary to career average to to defined contribution. And the devil is in the detail of what is justifiable age discrimination. I'm not a lawyer, but if the government looks to get around it, I think close analysis needs to be paid to how that's defined. I mean, it does always sound exciting when you say the police have got involved with something, but um, uh, I think that's perhaps in a slightly different context. I mean, uh, Ross, did you want did you want to close us on this topic? Is there any other sort of thoughts that you had just just from the conversation well, so far? And the irony here, of course, is that this all stemmed from an attempt to cut the costs to taxpayers of public service pensions. And when Lord Hutton was doing his inquiry, he specifically said at the end of his report that the government should not differentiate between different classes and everybody should immediately be moved onto the new system. And at the time, the government was fearful of upsetting the more senior public servants and decided on this transition arrangement, which has got it into all this trouble. 
So one thing that may come out of it, I presume, is that in future, if, if governments set up an independent review and the review recommends particularly against a certain course of action, they might think seriously about whether they should just accept that rather than what's happened here, which has caused the whole policy of cutting the cost of public sector pensions to unravel. Uh, last year, the government had to issue a statement saying that it was no longer sticking to its past policy of trying to reduce the costs in the way that it had planned. And, you know, this all has serious consequences for other tax and spending policies, too. Indeed, it's, it's almost enough to make one a libertarian, but I, I stress almost uh, in that sense. <laughs> um, moving on, uh, if uh, we move to uh, the, the regulators' attempts to uh, allay concerns arising from the new DB funding code, um, they've perhaps inevitably failed to please absolutely everyone. One consultation is now over. There is another, I believe, scheduled to be published in spring next year. But in the meantime, industry players remain a little bit unhappy about the balance of power in the proposed twin track approach falling on the side of the fast track route, uh, which Aon's head of uh, UK retirement policy, Matthew Ahrens, called mission creep. There is concern also that too little attention is being paid to covenant strength as a driver of schemes, funding and investment strategy. Uh, and also about the potential for the guilt-based parameters of fast-track driving bespoke schemes away from increasingly efficient cash flow-driven investment strategies, as per our report on this at the first of this month. Um, Alistair, if I can begin with you on this one. I mean, do you agree with those concerns as outlined? Are there others? I mean, are, is it fair to worry about the, the, the state of the, the new funding code as it stands? Yeah, I agree with some of that and perhaps not others. I mean, first I'll just say that... Um, this is a huge consultation. This, I think, over you know, two hundred pages, and you know, and this is just the start. As you say, we, we haven't even got got into the details of it yet that we're going to expect um, in the spring. But I mean, in terms of is this going to be too prescriptive? I, do, I don't think this week we, we have to go back to the nineteen nineties of an, an MFR arrangement where it was very prescriptive um, how every pension scheme had to fund. I mean, I think the pension regulator is trying to leave an, enough leeway in here um, if you want to take a different approach. You know, I think if you want to take a standardised, prescribed approach, you can under this fast track arrangement. Um, you know, going down a kind of a, a gentle ski slope will get a lot of um, schemes to where they want to be. But if you want to go off piste and take your own approach, uh, yeah, I, I think that the regulator is trying to factor that in. So... I, I don't quite agree um, in the, in the fact that the, these uh, that this has to be overly um, prescriptive, uh, but you, you just have to justify what you're doing. Um, I think that's what the re regulators um, trying to get at. If you want to take a bespoke approach to your funding, you can, but you just it just has to be evidenceable and, and justifiable. The, the other concepts of of the um, the consultation are, are good. You know, I think a lot of it is about trying to get to a long-term funding objective, bringing more stability to pensions. Um, there have been a lot of high-profile cases where where there has been instability in the system, and I, I, I do I do agree that you know we don't have to prescribe this so closely to a kind of a guilt-based long-term objective. Or you know, I think the regulator is saying a guilt plus a quarter or a guilt plus half a percent is what you can calculate your liabilities on i think i think it could be more, more market related it is in some periods it's quite easy to fund uh, pension schemes on a guilt plus a half basis and, and, and other periods not 
So I think if if if, were, if however that's specified is more refer, reference to investment markets, I think that would be helpful. But then we, you don't want to see herding behaviour. You don't want to see every pension scheme out there trying to invest in gilts and UK corporate bonds because the market's just not big enough. So I do agree on this CDI point. Pension schemes should be given the freedom to invest in assets that can generate the cash flows needed to, to be long term and stable. And, you know, that, that means in investing internationally in a diversified way, delivering cash flows, investing in illiquid assets to, to uh, generate extra return. I think the investment freedoms that pension schemes have today is good and that should be retained. Um, so I, I do agree on that on that latter point on, on, on CDI. And Ros, if I can turn to you, if my memory isn't failing me, one of the concerns I've heard raised about this previously is that the fact that the fast track is itself being used as a benchmark against which bespoke uh, models are, are measured can, even if it doesn't appear in the wording to be prescriptive, have a very prescriptive effect that, that restrains the sort of the scope of, of bespoke models. Um, would that be a fair concern, do you think? I mean, what are your thoughts on this area? Yeah, absolutely right. Um, I, I must admit that I am very, very concerned about the thrust of this consultation, about the way that it is being presented, uh, about the inconsistencies, particularly for open schemes. But, you know, the regulator has already said it wants to consult on the impact assessment, but that's not till next year. So it's consulting on principle before knowing what sticking to those principles might do. And I completely agree that actually what's what's the big risk here is that pension schemes are going to be doomed to failure by measures supposedly designed to help them succeed. And in a in a particular environment that we have now with quantitative easing, if you are going to be encouraging all these pension schemes and all this money to be competing with central banks for the same kind of asset, then you will be setting up this black hole or vicious circle that means you will continually have to fix deficits that arise because you can't buy matching assets. You can only buy assets that appear to match closely. But if you start from a position of a deficit, which many of the schemes that the regulator will be most concerned about are in, then investing in this supposedly safe manner will mean you give up on the kind of uh, extra returns that you need to meet your liabilities in terms of things like duration, in terms of um, longevity, in terms of inflation. You know, index-linked paper is yielding negative returns now. So you can't match inflation, but there's no CPI in bonds that you you can buy on this kind of safe route. The LPI bonds have not been issued that pension schemes might be able to use. And also, of course, pension uprating has a zero lower bound. So in periods of deflation, you may also have a significant problem. And if you're just aiming for gilt plus a quarter or gilt plus a half, then where is the extra money going to come from to meet the increase in liabilities that is above that? So in, in my view, with artificially low interest rates, for understandable reasons, although I disagree with the policy, as you know, I think quantitative easing should have been stopped a long time ago. And, and we're so far down the hole now, the only thing the banks can do, it seems, 
is keep on printing and creating new money and bailing out government spending. But leaving that aside for the moment, we have got a situation where we don't really know what investment risk means anymore. We think this is low risk, but actually it could well be that the risk position has been distorted. You know, the the capital asset pricing model relies on having a a base, a guilt Gilt yields are supposed to be the risk-free base against which other assets and risk levels are priced and judged. But actually, what's happened here is that the Bank of England has distorted the risk-free rate, or central banks generally have distorted the risk-free rate. So we've now got a very worrying circumstance where we're not exactly sure what investment risk means. We won't know for some time still. And we... I think, need to consider diversification as the new risk control rather than just switching to bonds, which has always been the historic route. You know, it's just not reliable to suggest all schemes buy one asset. The herding is definitely a risk. And I would hope that the regulator will take note of the serious concerns that have been mentioned across the DB landscape and the investment community that the current proposals are not safe and that we should not, particularly with open schemes, give up on the kind of investment returns that are essential to be able to generate the funds required to pay the pensions over the long run without effectively either bankrupting the employer or wasting resources that could be deployed much more usefully elsewhere. And I would go so far as to say that actually a much better proposal for DB funding could focus on using DB assets to invest in the growth that the economy clearly needs and the government wants to produce uh, in infrastructure, in social housing, in build-to-rent types of investment and other growth-producing assets in which the pension scheme could both produce the growth and then share in the growth that the economy is going to need for the ability to pay these promises over the long run. Indeed. I once tried some quantitative easing on my own credit card, incidentally, and actually when the bill, when it finally came due, was surprisingly enough not smaller than it was when I began. Um, So it does tend to rack up the costs. Finally, if we move on to uh, the subjects of master trusts, Dalriada trustees, as mentioned in the introduction, professional trustee Paul Tinsley wrote as a good piece at the end of last month, looking at some of the challenges faced by master trusts. And indeed, I wrote one myself yesterday about which I'm not allowed to make qualitative judgments, uh, looking at the same thing. The problem of small deferred parts remains unaddressed. By some estimates, master trusts are unlikely to break even on costs until 2025. And of course, the pandemic is causing all manner of administrative as well as financial headaches, uh, with the risk of schemes missing transfer dates being only one of the concerns raised with us. Uh, Alistair, I suppose I should begin with you uh, on this one. How would you gauge the the comparative health of master trusts versus society at large at the moment? Have they they suffered particularly from coronavirus? There has been a a huge direction of travel uh, over the last several years from just DC trust-based schemes to master trust. And I think a lot of that has been for good reason. You know, there has been increasing governance burden, some of which you've picked up on 
for DC trustees to comply with. There's, there's chair statements, there's statements of investment principles, there's value for money, there's auto-enrollment being introduced, there's charge caps. So there has been a lot of direction of travel towards master trusts. And I think that's the right direction of travel still because they are there's a better governance generally across the board there than many of the, the single DC um, trust-based schemes out there. So it's it has been the right direction of travel and that 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 that, that pace of travel does that really does continue um there has been um a reduction in that pace uh during the covid price um, period there has been lockdown and a lot of that has stopped it took a while for some administrators to get going again and i think that's what you what you're hinting at but a lot of businesses have now got back to work and there was a dam there was kind of um the the, the but but now the kind of the dam has burst and people have got back to work and there's more and more demand for master trust going forward. Uh, but I think a lot of the issues when it comes to administration have been got over. They've been answered. And, you know, if there was a backlog in cases, a lot of that has now been got through. Uh, I think the, the issue you mentioned with small pots, you know, it is an issue, especially with auto enrollment. And that that will mean there are a lot of smaller pots to deal with. I mean, over time they will grow, and that will become a lot less of an issue. Um, so some of the master trusts are breaking even over the next several years it will be a feature, but it is something we can get over in time. Uh, but I, I think you know a lot of the merits of master trusts are still there, um, and and they're still very appropriate. Absolutely. And and just on the, the subject of small parts, if I may, Alistair, I mean, um, there's a report from Aon, which was out a couple of days ago, I believe. And there's an estimate there that the average, the, the size of the average active part will have to rise to £18,000 by 2035 to support the growth in inactive parts, because inactive parts are growing at a considerable rate faster than our active parts. Uh, last year, I believe that figure was only 10000 uh, 400. So, I mean, would you say that this is a problem that, that requires addressing if it's going, if it's not going to undermine the whole project, or is it something that's been a, perhaps a bit overblown? I think it's a good point. I mean, a lot of the, the DC pot, we shouldn't lose sight of what um, DC pensions are, are here to do, and that's to produce a decent outcome in retirement. And you know, if, if we think in the years to come that many of these pots will not grow to a suitable size, well, that, that that needs to be appropriately governed and you know one should look at the investments but it should also be you should also look at how much money is being put into these pots um and you know it, it's been said that those auto enrollment contribution rates will be upped over time and perhaps so there's a case for increasing that further if, if we don't think uh, suitable outcomes are are there to, to to be achieved i mean i'm not i'm not familiar with the numbers that, that you quoted um benjamin but um i think you know you know, if, if we don't think there's a suitable outcome, that then you know that the, the, the contributions and investment strategies should be should be suitably reviewed. Uh, Roz, I wonder, well, did you have some thoughts on this? I'm not sure I'm quite as optimistic as Alistair is on on this one. And of course, the whole idea of setting up Nest was always because it was obvious right from the start of the policy of auto enrolment that there would be a proliferation of small deferred deferred pots. The industry would not want to take on and couldn't afford to manage. And that's exactly where we've ended up. But it was foreseeable. What wasn't foreseen at the time was that lots of employers with very low paid staff would still be taken on by the existing providers, which has been the case. So Nest was always meant to be there to 
cater for the obvious numbers of people that would arise for whom the industry would find itself unable to make profit or deal with in the way that is exactly being described. Now, the industry, master trusts, they have many advantages, but they also have many problems. And I do think that with the best will in the world, we are going to need much more consolidation across the industry because many of the master trusts are not going to be able to make the kind of returns necessary to keep them in existence in the long run. In the meantime, I think there's a big problem with data records and administration that has arisen already. Alistair alluded to that. But many of the master trusts do not necessarily have accurate records, and that needs to be addressed urgently, not least in order to get a reliable pensions dashboard. Uh, and I know that the, the pensions minister and the regulator are uh, looking at this. But if NEST becomes a consolidator of small pots and everybody who leaves the job is asked to transfer their pot to NEST, unless they have another place to take it to, I would expect that the pensions industry itself would, would start to look at ways in which it can improve its communication with members and its ability to get members to put more money into their pension funds. Pensions are a brilliant product. You know, pensions are the best way, unquestionably, for almost everybody to save for their later life. The, the benefits of the free money from the employer and from tax relief are enormous relative to any other type of saving like ISAs or, or uh, bank accounts for, for those who aren't extremely highly paid. But, of course, at the moment, you've got a, a situation where people are relying on the government to mandate higher contributions rather than having to, if you like, encourage individuals and explain to individuals why the pension is such a great product for them. So people aren't yet proud of their pensions. They're not yet engaged with their pensions. That's a big challenge, which we hope will be addressed and certainly needs to be addressed over time. And then master trusts, the ones that have survived and, and, and can consolidate together and, and whoever is left will be the ones that succeed for the future. And I suspect it will be the ones with best communication and customer service in the end. will then be able to thrive in a competitive environment. You know, we don't want Nest to be the only provider, although that might be uh, what some people had originally envisaged, you know, a state pension provider. But that has all kinds of other potential risks. But we do also need to make sure that we don't have a situation where all these low earners have got lots of deferred small pots, which are being eaten away by charges and never actually deliver them much in the way of a pension. They never actually engage with it. And therefore, it's it's wasted for them. Closing us off then in total, closing off the episode, and we come to our always a pensions angle. And I think, Alistair, you said you had one for us this week. Yeah, I have quite an obscure Twitter feed. I did see that, um, it, I think it's 500 years uh, we're coming up to um, since the start of monasteric pensions from the monasteries um, all those years ago. And they had some great retirement living standards, um, it seems. So I think back in 1520... £20 did buy you a lot. You got £5 a year uh, from your, your local monastery, plus um, seven gallons of beer a week, seven loaves of bread a week, eight wagons of firewood, and, and all the fish and meat you could eat. So 
Um, <laughs> had some great retirement living standards back in the day, and maybe we should consult about bringing some of those retirement living standards back. <laughs> I, I'm not going to disagree with anyone who says that I should be able to get more beer on somebody else. That's always a, a good one. Someone else picks up the tab. Um, I think that, that pretty much covers it for this week then. Thank you, um, Alistair, and thank you, Roz, very much for joining us. We'll be back in thank you, two weeks' time. Uh, obviously, we're all trying very hard not to, to spread the virus, but the same does not apply to podcasts, so please remember to like, share, and subscribe and do all the rest of it for us. We will be back in two weeks' time, as I say, and we will see you then. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.